0: Great. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks so much for visiting today. Like Spencer said before, if you're brand new, welcome to our, one of our gatherings. We're glad you guys are here. Uh, we are um, in a series right now in the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, actually, as a quick aside, um, <laughs> this is going to feel way off subject, but it's not. Uh, today, or this month, marks uh, Pastor Spencer's 10-year work anniversary at Hiawatha Church. So. Uh, it wasn't today, right? It was like earlier in the month or something 10 years ago. That's what I remember. Anyway, but, uh, but you're a gift, brother. So give this guy a hug later, say congratulations. Um, yeah, you, I think, I've said before, I think the best thing I've done for this church is hire that guy. So, uh, and I mean that. You're a your gift uh, to me and, and this body. So we even threw you a party across the street after church. So grab a piece of cake. Uh, anyway. Uh, so, we, um, kind of off of that, we're going to talk uh, today and kind of almost wrap up our Second Timothy sermon series, which we've been in for most of the summer. Uh, this is the penultimate sermon, so next week, actually, Spence will finish up the, uh, the series before we move on to something different for the fall, uh, which actually, I should just say, uh, if you don't, didn't hear this yet, we're going to preach a few psalms in September, but uh, we're going to preach through the books of First and Second Samuel for the school year. So it's going to be really fun. Uh, I think it'll take us through Memorial Day. It's looking right now. We'll break for Christmas uh, for a couple of weeks, but that's about it. So a little bit more on that. We'll intro it and kind of, um, you know, gear up for it for a week or so before diving in uh, early October there. But um, really excited for that. All right, so uh, what we are in now, though, is the book of 2 Timothy, and uh, today serves basically in the book, uh, Paul the Apostle's writing to his protege, Timothy, uh, from prison in Rome, about, he thinks he's about to die, and he was actually right, this is the last letter we have from him, at least in the Bible, and it, it serves as kind of his final charge and final consolation. Uh, it, it feel, it, you'll feel so, sort of the solemnity of it as I read this in, in just a second. Um, But if you're brand new to this book or to what we call the pastoral letters, that's basically kind of the historical face value context is an older pastor, uh, Paul, the guy that wrote half the New Testament, uh, is uh, writing to a younger pastor named Timothy who's in Ephesus, uh, just kind of getting off the ground with his ministry. And in this case, it's not so much um, how to pastor, though it is definitely that. He also has this kind of air of, I may never see you again. I don't feel like my trial's going that well. If I'm reading the writing on the wall, I'm pretty sure they're going to execute me for being a Christian here in Rome. And this happened in the 60s AD, which is when Nero was um, flying high, you know, and that whole thing. So a lot of Christians died under his reign, but uh, Paul was uh, likely one of them. So uh, this, is, this has kind of a, uh, not only do I, I want you to hear this before, uh, or a, as a pastor and before I die, but this, I, I may never see you again. So there's, there's, that, there's that kind of uh, solemnity. Uh, to it. So um, let me just read it though to start, and I'll uh, kind of tell you where I'm going to go after that. I'll give you kind of the framework, and then we'll go from there. So uh, today is uh, called Poured Out Like a Drink Offering. And I'll explain that here in just a second, but this is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1 In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Okay, so uh, three angles today that won't be new to you if you've been here for even part of this series. Uh, We're going to look at what this passage has to say to pastors, then we're going to look at it from a little bit wider lens, and and as he kind of says here in in verse 8, this is something for all of us, a a word for all of us uh, here uh, as well, so for all Christians, but even if you're not a Christian yet, uh, we'll we'll talk on on that level, and then we'll widen out further to, to see what this passage has to say about Jesus, and kind of for him, in a sense, and for us to receive uh, from him will kind of end on on that level so uh, the pastoral letters have that kind of layered nuance to them if you didn't know that uh, it's important to understand that so we can you know not over interpret or over apply certain things but in the right areas you want to of course but not over interpret or over imply things as though it's all for us some of this stuff is just for pastors and a lot of it is just not even about us it's about the ultimate chief pastor of our souls Jesus Christ all right hopefully you'll see kind of where what I mean by that as we go here Okay, so we'll start with uh, something for pastors, all right. And again, if you're not a pastor, there's still a lot here. A lot of this stuff could be really for all Christians too. But this is a word for uh, for me, Spence, Peter, all of our uh, all of our pastors uh, who make up who lead Hiawatha Church currently, aspiring pastors maybe as well. And for those of you who are not, to know how to pray for us and what to expect maybe too from our our ministry. Okay, so again, these aren't necessarily uh, quite dying words for Paul, but they're the closest thing we have in Scripture. As I was kind of seen that before uh, the solemnity in this is again when he says verse 1 uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his coming appearing his coming kingdom I give you this charge preach the word all right so this is like if you've read Paul I mean this is like as close to a uh, raise your right hand uh, moment that, that you see from him it's uh, kind of a Hippocratic oath maybe moment uh, for, for him as well. It's very, it comes with that kind of weightiness to it uh, as, as a pastor. He goes on to say more than just preach the word, uh, as you just heard, but this is uh, first for a reason. In fact, everything else there he says about rebuking and correcting and instructing and teaching fall underneath preaching. So it's not like this is one domino on the table of all the same sized things. It's like this is kind of the main thing that um, all the other things find their place underneath. A pastor's main job is to preach and teach the word. Everything else is secondary. Uh, So it's not a pastor's job to be like a cultural commentator, to know everything about everything, uh, to be a social services guru, or to administrate, or to do personal counseling, or even to officiate weddings and funerals. Um, Though all of those things are maybe, depends what what you mean by all of them, but they they could be important and and could have uh, a a part in in a pastor's job description. Um, They're not the main thing. It's clear that Paul wants Timothy to be a man of the Word, to preach it and not just teach it. Uh, preaching and teaching, I know it's kind of obvious, but they're different words in English, right? They're also different words in Greek from which we translate this. Uh, preach is from the word keruso. Uh, teach is a different word. It, it's, it's, they overlap, for sure, but teaching is to teach concepts. It's objective. It's less personal. Uh, it's this is what this means over here. It's, it's, it's announcing maybe a fact. Uh, and think, it's kind of what I'm doing right now, actually. I'm saying this is what the word teaching means, and uh, make note of that or think about that, or this is a concept to understand. It helps you maybe understand meaning. Preaching, though, is different. Preaching is to say, uh, or when Paul says this here, he's saying I want you to herald the gospel, not just teach concepts. I want you to announce good news. I want you to, uh, to rush into the city and say the war is over. I have good news and to do that constantly. Uh, it, it's, it is to speak uh, almost um, on behalf of God. Not in a um, thus say it the Lord kind of way as though everything we say is perfect. It's not. Uh, we're not writing scripture through our oracles here but it is to stand up here and say that when you hear us talk about God and what he's like and what he's done for you, that is not just our ideas. It's God saying that through us to you because he loves you and he wants you to know those things, uh, what he's like and, and what salvation is. All right, so... In fact, uh, if you were here last week, the week before, he just got done saying, uh, th- you know, things like, don't get stuck in the weeds of arguing over words, don't be like those people who are always learning but never arriving at the truth, um, and many things like that. He, he wants, this is, that's not an anti-intellectual statement, by the way, but he is saying, at the end of the day, preach, uh, make complex terms simple, uh, preach good news over and over again and over again um, you know we go to if you go to class like at a college or a high school or something like you expect to learn something different every time uh, and that's teaching but preaching's a little bit different i mean yes you're going to learn maybe something new a little bit maybe every time but you also expect to hear the same thing every time because you at least you should because you don't want the gospel to change uh, if, if i said something new every time it would be like well now you need to know this and now you're you're deficient because what you knew about Jesus before wasn't enough. And so you should actually, through preaching, you should want to hear the same thing uh, every uh, Sunday. And it's okay if you don't always feel that, but that's you know, what we want as your pastors, as individuals too who are hearing this and who are wanting to feed you with the right kind of gospel bread uh, and not to advance from it. Okay, so that leads me to this next point, uh, which is uh, to talk about this word, word. All right, um, and I just got done saying that pastors shouldn't mince words, and now here I go. Right, uh, so there's a place for it, I guess. But what does word mean? That, that's an important question here. Um, there's both a broad and a specific sense to it. In one sense, it means the whole Bible. The Bible is God's word, every single word of it. Uh, last week I talked about um, Paul says uh, all Scripture is God breathed. It's it's sourced by Him. It's it's breathed out by Him and is useful, it's important, it's profitable, it, it saves us, and it all tells the story in its, own, in its uh, different way. But in another sense, there's a specificity to this word, all right? So like many motifs in the Bible that start broad and less defined in the Old Testament, then get clear and more narrow in the New Testament, so does the idea of word, in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is the word. It's his name. It conceptualizes who he is. Uh, he, as Jesus says somewhere in John, I do not speak on my own, but only what I receive from God the Father. Okay, so, so it's like he is God the Father's voice piece, but it's more than just being a voice piece like a prophet. It's that he is himself, the capital W word. So that means God wants to say something to us, but what he ultimately and best wants to say is Jesus. What he best wants to say is Jesus on a cross among criminals. What he best wants to say is there's an empty tomb. Jesus is alive. And many uh, and various related uh, truths to that The circle right around it. Those are the main things. Uh, that's the main word of Scripture. I elsewhere, he uses the phrase word of truth. That means the gospel, not just all the Bible, but the gospel especially uh, with, within The the Bible. So, so Paul's saying two things here to Timothy. Timothy, preach the Bible, but more specifically, preach Jesus. Or to put it together, preach the gospel in all the Bible. Wherever you are, in Genesis, Leviticus, Joshua, the Psalms, Proverbs, 1 and 2 Samuel, or here in the New Testament with the gospels like John, or even in these letters as well, which are Scripture, Holy Scripture. See Jesus in them. Uh, uh, Help people. To see Jesus in them and not just a mere image of themselves, but to see a picture of someone who's done something for them, even God himself, who at high cost has worked for and purchased them back from hell. You probably heard us say before too, and I'll say it again, uh, we, we, we would say this here, it's not enough to be vaguely biblical, but biblical in the right specific way which means we need to emphasize the grace of Christ as the most important word that all other words fall uh, underneath. And this is why in the Bible itself, you see the word greater when it refers to certain parts of scripture. There's a greater covenant. The New Testament's greater than the old, Hebrews 8 says. Jesus in John 14 says, uh, you will do greater things to the disciples than what I've been doing. Uh, and so it, just, it, it leads us to emphasize the right things and de-emphasize uh, the others, even though they can all be and are God's words all right then he says uh, the time is coming um, and is already here when people will gather teachers to itch their ears Um, this is I think meant to be a little bit humorous I don't know for sure but I like to think Paul had a a little sarcastic streak to him maybe but uh, he likes to uh, give an image here this is actually meant to be a little bit weird Uh, like people are gathering people around them to get in line to itch behind their ears like a dog you know uh, but this is what's going to happen, he says, is this is what people will be like and kind of already are in the future. But he's not just saying the world. He's uh, Remember, he's writing to a pastor who's pastoring a church and who has a specific interest in those people under his care in the church. So he's talking about Christians, at least people who profess to be Christians, but he's talking about believers who will want to do this. He's saying that kind of way, that kind of evil, that kind of bias is... Uh, A time is coming when that will be the case. And as a pastor, be on guard. Uh, Know that it's going to happen. Try to fight against it. But just know that you're going to lose people uh, to it uh, as well. So, if that's still a little bit nebulous, uh, remember the context here, if you've been here uh, for this series, is these false teacher types that are, as he says last week, uses the, the phrase, worming into churches. Like you picture inchworms like He's just got great imagery in this letter. It's, and it's awful, but it's, it's wonderful, you know, at the same time. But these false teachers are worming in and deceiving people, uh, Christians, away from this, this simple gospel message. Um, and so these teachers uh, who are, are doing this are not then coming into churches and teaching people that, guess what, it's all of a sudden okay to do bad things and to worship the devil. Like, that's not... Uh, what's happening? That, 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 that's, that wouldn't be a trap. That wouldn't be a half-truth. That wouldn't be happening in the context of a church. You wouldn't have Christians coming to church expecting, yeah, I'm going to go to church down the street. I expect them to tell me to worship Satan you know, or to murder my you know, biggest enemy. Like You wouldn't expect that, right? But, uh, so they, would, they wouldn't go. But What would happen in church is you would have teachers who would teach more subtle, half-truth, false gospels. Uh, and I, I would say here... Um, whose view of the Christian life can best be understood as life-hack-centered. So again, they they will want their ears itched in church. Not by obvious wear your sin on your sleeve things necessarily, though in one sense I guess that could be understood uh, that way, especially in a broad, worldly sense as well. But more than that, and more specific than that, they want their ears itched in church. All right, Now, itching ears, think about that phrase. I think that itching ears is synonymous with flattery. Uh, Paul uses that word flattery in another, I believe it's in Galatians. He says, I didn't come with you with words of flattery. I didn't come to flatter you or pat you on the back or say nice job or uh, even though there's a place for that, obviously, in life. But he's saying as a pastor, though ultimately, the gospel, when it comes to you, doesn't say well done or it doesn't pat you on the back. It doesn't say uh, this is a reward now you get for all these moral accolades. Uh, it comes apart from all of that. And so, in that sense, Paul is clear. I don't. The gospel ultimately is not a flattery. That is to say, it's not an ear itching idea. Um, so, flattery then would be. You could you could like conceptualize this in a thousand ways, but I would say um, flattery looks like wanting to be told that even though we're sinners, at the core though, we're enough, and we can do it. Like that's that's like a church version of flattery. So, even though we're sinners. The message is you're still enough yourself and you can do it. There's a lot of like imperatives or commands or whatever in this book. You can do these Um, and and that constitutes preaching or constitutes the main thing you hear uh, in in a church. Paul is saying that's a bad thing. That's not the gospel. But a time is coming and is already here where that's happening. So be on guard. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, who is was a... a, um, a seminary professor in, I believe it's more theological uh, um, seminary in, in Sydney, Australia, uh, wrote in a book on preaching, not in commentary on this particular verse, but it's so um, uh, on subject. I wanted to read it from you. Actually, from a book on preaching, which actually does fit here, um, on what itching ears uh, basically means. All right, so he says, A former colleague of mine, used to express the conviction that often congregations seemed to have an almost masochistic approach to preaching. If the preacher really told them what a hopeless bunch they were and what they needed to do about it, or if he really laid down the law about how they needed to improve their spiritual lives and performance, they would come away feeling really good, battered and bruised, but good. Now, this may be a bit of an exaggeration, but I suspect there has been many a holiness convention when this is exactly what happened. Why do we like to be given this kind of treatment? We may not enjoy being taken to task, but somehow we feel that when we've been so treated, we have benefited all around. Things are looking up. There's a chance if we all pull together, we can get this church back on track. I now know exactly what I need to do in order to be living the victorious Christian life, and so on. I suggest that we love this kind of treatment because we are legalists at heart. We would love to be able to say that we have fulfilled all kinds of conditions, be they tearing, surrendering fully, or getting rid of every known sin so that God might truly bless us. It's a constant temptation to want to take our spiritual pulse and to apply the sanctificational barometer. All right? This is what itching ears means. This is what uh, a, a Christian coming to church and expecting this kind of preaching, this kind of theology, this is what we want to hear. And this is what, uh, it doesn't mean we're, we all are thinking this today. It, we may not be. Again, Paul's saying the time is coming when this will be more pronounced. So there might be more pronounced times of this, less pronounced in our own individual hearts, as well as kind of the broader church culture or just society at large. When they think about church and preaching, what are they thinking about, all kinds of layers to it, to be clear. But this is a helpful commentary on what it's, it's looking like and, and what to uh, label it as when we feel it inside of us and when we hear it from uh, preacher types in the world or read it on social media uh, or a, a book or, or something like that uh, is what to label it as and what to resist. And again, for pastors especially to guard the church uh, from it. And the only solution to this is to preach the Bible accurately and to maintain a stubborn distinction between law and gospel, and to preach the word, which is Christ, not us. That is, not to preach the Bible as an instruction manual, but a story that culminates in the love of Christ shown to us on that cross. That's, that's the remedy. That's the solution. Uh, because when you're doing that, you're not doing the other. Right? Like You can't do both. It's really hard to syncretize them. All right, then we'll widen out here and talk about something for all Christians. So I know there's a lot there uh, in terms of like something for pastors. That actually was something primarily for pastors in the room, uh, but it's for all of us too, obviously. Um, but that gives you an idea of what, how we read these letters and what we're, um, how we think when we think about preaching, when we think about our primary job, and, and so forth. All right, then widening out, uh, Paul has something for all Christians. Uh, pulling from verse 8 here again, when he says, and not only me but also all who have longed for for Christ appearing. So, now again, these are, like I said before, these are some of the final words of Paul. I think that these words in particular are the words of a beaten and bruised Christian who is full of hope at the same time because his hope is in Jesus, not in circumstance. And so, you know, Christians, we don't always have this, but the idea is that we can have awful circumstance and robust, otherworldly, insane hope running concurrent at the exact same time because our hope is entirely apart from circumstance and entirely apart from all the good that we do in our life and entirely apart from how we feel. That we can have these kind of things run concurrent. Paul has this. He's in prison, about to die, and he can say these things. He's saying, here at the end of my life, I still believe Jesus is alive. I still trust in him. I believe he died for my sins and therefore I know I'm saved. I have not been seduced by the allure of the sin of self-trust. And so in my prison cell, in my weakness, I have nothing to boast in, nothing to show for myself, nothing to boast in but him. And then again, he adds, not only for me but for all. And so this is what we should all strive for. This is striving in the Christian life. I think this uh, encapsulates it so beautifully. We should strive for that crown of righteousness, that reward of eternal life, and finishing by faith. That's an important key phrase there. Finishing by faith. All right, but here's what I love about Christianity. I love a thousand things, but here's, here's what I love about it. Uh, right when you think uh, that you, you know what it's talking about or that you think it's talking about one thing, it comes around with a surprise left hook, uh, left hook of gospel. And it says, yeah, but not in the way you're thinking. Uh, so you know, I might think about one thing when you see some of these words up here and what that looks like in a Christian's life and um, what it looks like at the end of a Christian's life. But what the Bible uh, often does is surprises us with a hint of, yeah, but not in a worldly sense. We, we need to apply a different kind of thing to it. All right, so I'll build here. I'll start with one thing and explain by that what I mean by that. The fact that Paul is in prison, prison, not on a first-place pedestal, ready to get his medal, but in prison, saying all of this has all the irony and, and grace-laden messaging you need to remember that it's not about us. It's not about us. And that success is, in the Christian life, is not measurable because it's not at all about our works. So you can't measure it. So a guy in prison at the end of his life, you know, can say, I've finished the race. I've I've kept the faith. Um, But the fact that the guy who wrote half the New Testament here is ending his ministry and his life this way um, amplifies the message of grace and downplays the message of, of measurable works. Think about it this way. The words fought, finished, and kept all have little to do with winning, placing, or having in high amount, right? Like technically you can lose doing all three. You can lose when you fight, you can lose when you race, um, and, uh, and with keeping uh, you can not advance, right? Like both boxers fight, even though one only wins, all the racers finish, even though one only wins. Uh, And keeping has everything to do with maintaining and nothing to do with ascending or getting better. See how crazy Christianity is? It goes against all like the measuring stick ways we look at our lives and our spirituality. And it says it's different, it's different. Uh, Christianity is for losers just as much as winners. There's no partiality. There's no class systems. There's no moral hierarchy. Just those with faith, whatever the size of faith. That's it. Do you see how there's no measuring here? Like someone could finish the marathon in, what's the best marathon time ever? I don't even know. I don't run marathons. Two hours and whatever. And someone could finish in like a week. And they both finish, right? Like, th- th- that's the point. This isn't about you and how good you're doing at Christianity. It's not about you. See, Paul wanted that. He'd use different terminology. So this is saying to all of us, all of us who uh, are longing for Jesus' appearing, this word for all, all believers and non-Christians who are looking from the outside, it's to say, stop ranking yourself, Stop thinking that you're a better Christian for doing something or a worse one for not. Stop looking at someone else's comfortable life and thinking that they're more favored and loved. This is simply about staying in the game. Come what may, trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and never moving on from what we were given the first day we believed. That's what Christianity is about. Keeping, not massaging something into another sculpture that's bigger than, than what it was when you got it. Keep salvation that you were given apart from your works just because you were loved. Keep it. Don't invest it to make more. Keep it. Hold on to it. Don't expect it to change. Don't want it to change. Don't think God wants it to change. If your faith grows, wonderful. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Do you have faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins or not? That's the crux. What do you do with the bloody cross? Do you cling or not cling? Do you scribe? Do you hold on tight or not? That's the crux of the matter. And that's what's so insanely unreligious and radical about this way of thinking. Also, what are we rewarded for here exactly? Are we rewarded for our obedience and a certain level of achieved sanctification? Absolutely not. We're only awarded for keeping the faith and longing for Jesus' appearing. That's it. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you long for him? Those are the the, um, descriptors to mature Christianity, that a person who's a believer for a day and a person who's a believer for 100 years uh, can equally share, right? Somehow that may be in a more strong or a weak way. It's, and that's, we're going to oscillate there. Uh, and that's normal. But do you long to see the one who died for your sins? That's a great litmus test for your faith. If you don't long to see him, like maybe at all, chances are you're, 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 you're thinking, I've got work to do until he comes back. You're thinking in a works-based kind of way. If you long to see him as a sinner, chances are that's an indicator that you believe the gospel, right? That you believe that you're saved by grace, not by moral performance. So there's nothing to do before he comes back. You don't have to get your life in order. You're just longing to see him. Does that make sense? Yeah. See how it's different? It's, Christianity is different. It's just different. It's not at all like other religions. And the second you think it is, you're probably misunderstanding. So this is kind of a good reset, right? These kind of things are resets for us. So these kind of things, again, they de-re- de-religious- de-religiousify our perceived notions of, of some of this. And um, the reward is coming for those who, who have this kind of faith. It's a simple one. It doesn't mean to say that... Um, and I think a good qualifier here would be to say that it doesn't mean that's easy, though, all the time. Um, it doesn't mean there aren't a thousand dark angels working against us at all times, or that we, too, won't be tempted away from grace. Like, we need to be vigilant. And remember, we're in a war, and staying in community with other believers who might be strong when we're weak, and, and we need that. We also need, I think, the reminding and recentering properties of communion blended weekly with strong gospel-centered preaching that doesn't scratch itching ears or flatter us, but preaching that applies the balm of grace on the open sores of our sin over and over and over and over again. That's what you need. That's what I need. That's what the Bible says we need. That's what God says we need. You don't need spiritual barometer changing. You don't need this perfect spiritual growth sanctification arc. Whatever that even means. You know, the second you're on that, you're doomed. What we need is a constant, boring keeping of the one thing. I mean, maintaining and keeping is like the most boring word ever. You know, it's like, it's the epitome of unchanged. Uh, but, the, but the Bible says that's what you need, is that boring, repetitive, ongoing Jesus, not wanting to go back to Egypt like Israel did when they got sick of the bread. Um, great image, by the way, of uh, and warning for us uh, to think about. All right, then last, uh, last, and third and last here, is to uh, twist the diamond a little further and to look at this from the angle of something for Jesus and for us to receive. It kind of builds off what we were saying here. But verse six again, Paul says, "I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near." All right, super interesting uh, choice of words for Paul. Uh, to liken himself to a drink offering, and in one sense he's just talking about his impending death, but in another sense he's choosing to tap into some imagery here that draws us back to the Old Testament and helps us understand the greater purpose of his ministry as it relates to Jesus. All right. So, quick aside on drink offerings, uh, which it's, maybe it's been a while since you've read Leviticus, uh, like it has been for me. But uh, drink offerings were a part of ancient Israelite, ancient Israel's sacrificial. Uh, like cultic system or, or laws. They, um, in part, they were used to worship God, to commemorate him during some of their annual festivals where, uh, where wine would be poured out um, on the altar and offered to God. So it served as uh, a, like an atoning, sin-atoning thing as well, like all the sacrifices did. Um, it wasn't every day, but it was, it was a regular thing. It was a cousin of sorts to grain and food offerings. Uh, you might be aware of those. But um, you might be aware there are other kinds of sacrifices as well, like animal sacrifices, most notably, but a drink offering didn't require a life, right? It requ- required a crushed grape, but, but not like a, a life of an animal. And that's what makes Paul's choice of words here so interesting. He's likening his impending death to a drink offering, something that has no hold anymore over Christians. Like, it, that, like when Jesus came, he ended the sacrificial system. And so, uh, and that's kind of the idea. When when, when Paul says that my life here, my impending death is like a drink offering, he's not meaning that in a literal term of what it did in Old Testament times, but he's linking himself with the broader idea to remind us that the sacrifices had a spiritual and human-facing goal to them, ultimately for the sake of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. So the idea here is that Paul is a picture of, Christ. So, um, and that was his job, in a special way that Scripture doesn't say just about any Christian elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, Paul actually says in terms of drink offering, he says it twice, in Philippians 2, and he says it uh, here. And in both cases, it's about him being the drink offering. He never says, um, you should be a drink offering like me. He says, I have been poured out as a drink offering for you. And in that sense, he starts to, again, Whisper that the drink offerings had a goal to them. They had a a forward-looking bent that Jesus would come to end them by being the drink offering himself. So Paul, the ultimate apostle here, is saying, I'm a picture. I'm a whisper. I'm a type. I'm an echo. I'm calling you backwards with my life, with my role in being this great apostle. I'm trying to point you to the great Savior who is the true and better drink offering of all time. Uh, Jesus here actually gets pretty explicit himself with this when he, uh, in Mark 14 when it says, He took a cup hours before his arrest and crucifixion uh, at the Last Supper when he had given thanks, he poured it out, or gave it to them rather, and they drank from it and says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. So Jesus is directly connecting his death with the pouring out of the wine uh, of, of the Old Testament here. It's a direct allusion. And so, uh, so, again, and Paul then again, Paul then again is saying, if my life in any way can be understood as a reflection of this, let me remind you of what Jesus is. That's the point. He's not replacing Christ. He's being a shadow of him. And that's the thing about drink offerings that I think um, are especially, like it especially preaches to us when we remember that drink offerings would have felt like a waste. A special and at times expensive substance being opened up, the cork comes out, wouldn't have been corks, but you know what I mean, and they poured it out on the ground. Uh, we don't do this, right? Like if you go to a dinner party, the host doesn't just show up and start pouring out the wine outside, and you're like, oh man, what's going on? And they say, don't worry, we have plenty of tap water inside. Don't worry about it. We don't waste things, but God does waste things in the Old Testament, and the idea is with Jesus in the new, Jesus is that special, expensive substance, His blood, which He willingly pours out on the ground and wastes it for us. We wouldn't do this, but He would. He doesn't spare Himself, He gives, even foolishly and scandalously, in a way that we never would, to show that His love is always greater and altogether different from ours. That's what the drink offerings pictured and that's what Jesus as like the peak, like the top of the mountain, the ultimate fulfillment of those things is saying. I spare absolutely no expense for you. I'm willing to waste myself for you. I'm willing to pour out my blood on the ground for you, dying among criminals, that you might actually be able to drink and your thirst might be ended. All right, so as Christians then... um, this, this encompasses this, but the whole thing today. Christians, we, we need to remember that we live our life under the constant knowledge of the fact that help comes from outside of us, not within. And so I think that's what the pastoral letters do so beautifully uh, from different layers, is they show us that that doesn't change in our conversion. Um, we see glimpses of this idea in the church that help is from outside, not from within. Our help our trust, our abilities uh, to obey and do and impress God uh, don't matter in light of Christ. Uh, the, the epochs have changed. Um, the, the, the idea here is that help will always be objective to us, not a subjective thing. And so whether it's a, a pastor's or friend's love uh, I- inside the church, uh, we can see glimpses of these things, but the full-blown noonday day sun of it is always going to be in Christ. He is the ultimate help. He's the helper of our souls. He helps us up from sin. He lifts us up. And um, I think Paul is trying to say that. He's, he's um, saying, Timothy, be an emblem of this to your church in Ephesus. But it's not about you. Like, our, our ministry as pastors, we need to show that help comes from outside by being a helper of our congregants. In different ways, and all Christians can team up and do this and should, uh, but he's saying it's not about us. When we do that, we remind ourselves that help is from above. Salvation's from him, not from the works of your hands and your ability to do anything whatsoever. Uh, Paul says in Romans 9 if you add works to grace, grace ceases to become grace. You can't blend your works with the idea of God's grace, or grace literally changes its definition. Grace needs to stay undiluted, pure, unadulterated, and completely unmixed with what we do in our lives, with, with, our, with our works and our goodness, uh, perceived or otherwise. So the final word here uh, that I'll leave you all with um, is a word from Jesus to us. It's not saying, you need to do anything, you need to mimic Paul, you need to be a drink offering, Uh, you need to do this or that. Uh, The final word is the best word of this passage, uh, and really the best word of the whole book, uh, though we see it in every passage. And that is, it's it's actually a love letter from Jesus to us, saying through the pen of Paul, I have been poured out like a drink offering for you, spilt, and dashed and wasted against the rocks. My body left hanging like an empty wine bottle, so that in me you might be saved, kept, nourished, and forgiven. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for that, that final word that Paul's life to Timothy, Paul's life in the Holy Scriptures as an objective reality to our lives something we look at from the outside is a glimmer, it's a glimpse of something very, very beautiful, Uh, that beauty being you, Uh, that special substance, the most expensive substance in the universe being the blood of Jesus, uh, that you are willing to give it and to be, in one sense, careless with it. Uh, You spilled, you dumped it on the ground. You showed that your way of loving us was much more generous than the love that we have ever shown to you or, or ever could. Uh, not to mention any other person uh, in our lives. Uh, So thank you that your love is that epic. It's that big. It's that otherworldly. It's that much about you doing something foolish in the eyes of the world. Uh, That is to become a human being, to die in our place, that death and sin and the devil and our old lives might not have the final word, but your word of grace, love, acceptance, forgiveness, and consolation And we thank you that we have that in you wherever we are in our faith. Um, Small, big, medium, uh, help us to trust in you alone and to not graduate from that all our days. In Christ we pray. Amen.